1: where our mission is to help you, our listeners, from Los Angeles to Long Island, make your second half of life even better than the first. If you or a member of your family has ever been affected by medical errors, a serious public health problem, and a leading cause of death in the U.S., you should know about PULSE, the PULSE Center for Patient Safety, Education, and Advocacy. In today's episode, Eileen Carina, the founder and president of PULSE, will talk about her decades-long journey advocating for patients, sitting at their bedside, working with families, as well as a host of experts, volunteers, and providers, dedicated to building a healthcare system that is better and safer for everyone. Pulse's work is important for all of us, but particularly for older people who often may not be able to advocate for themselves. Eileen will describe the wide range of Pulse training and education programs, classes and workshops designed to empower patients and their families, like the Healthcare Equity Project that explores challenges faced by vulnerable populations, and its unique Take Charge campaign that works directly with the public before people become patients, teaching them how to take charge of their healthcare decisions. Research shows that when patients are engaged in their healthcare, there can be measurable improvements in safety and results. Ultimately, Pulse's mission is not about health, but healthcare, the journey to better health, a collaboration of patients, families, volunteers, Advocates and other safety organizations. When it comes to Pulse's work in the community, Eileen says, "Our motto is: We listen, we learn, we lead." So now let's meet our guest, Eileen karina Eileen, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much, Ron. It's so great to be here.
1: Yes. Uh, so of course today is uh, Martin Luther King Day. Um, so I just wanted to make a note of that, and I'm sure there, there are many celebrations and events across the country, including where I am here in Long Island. Eileen um and uh I and thinking about it uh, and 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 commemorating Dr King's work uh, I uh, and thinking about my show I was also gratified when I thought about the fact that you know part of his legacy is to inspire people to passionately advocate for a cause whether it's racial justice uh, economic economic equity uh, um, civil rights and uh the more I've gotten to know about your work Eileen I'm I'm just Really gratified about the kind of work you're doing and the passion advocacy you've done on behalf of patients. So the first thing I want to do is thank you for your work and your service.
2: Thank you for that recognition. I appreciate it. I love what I do, and I hope to continue and make it grow even more.
1: Yeah, great. Um, So as we start, maybe you can just give us a little bit of background about the field of patient advocacy. It's something that's growing a lot. I think people may have a general idea what it's about. But talk about, you know, how the field has grown and your particular approach to it as you, and starting uh, of Pulse.
2: Well, Pulse has been around for over 25 years and a lot of patient advocates say that we are the, the 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 ones who started a lot of the work in patient advocacy. There's a lot of different types of patient advocates. Of course, we talk about being a, someone being a patient in the healthcare system and needing support and help Mm assistance through that time so a patient advocate could be someone who does billing helping with billing can help with insurance can help with uh you know other things at the bedside or or looking at their their records their medical records to make sure they're getting the best care an advocate can help from the transformation from the hospital to home or hospital Mm -hmm. to nursing home There's a lot of different ways an advocate can help. Our focus has always been on safety. Mm -hmm. If it it moves away from safety, we try to give it away to someone else because we don't want to dilute the importance of what we do, which is unique to what other advocates might do. And remember, there's also a field of activists. There's Mm -hmm. people who want to change laws and make laws and make the policies. And that's a great thing also. I did that early on and that's how I became an advocate because my passion became more being at the bedside or working with the family whose family member is um is in the hospital or in the healthcare system and they're lost for support. They need support. Right. So our focus has been on safety all along. And we've been doing this for twenty literally twenty-five years. We're yeah. not on our twenty-fifth year.
1: Right. So when you talk about safety, I mean, um, let's um Let's break that down. What's, what sort of safety are we talking about? How do you look at safety?
2: Well, medical errors, mistakes that are made in the healthcare system, are said to be the third leading cause of death in this country. There's a tremendous many reasons why an error might happen, a mistake might happen. Mm-hmm. And that could be medication errors, um, a misdiagnosis. Just this past December, a new study came out on diagnostic errors that it's a leading cause of. Problems and deaths in the hospitals and healthcare system that is 6%, um, an estimated 130 million people who go into the emergency room every year get misdiagnosed. Now, that's a huge amount, that's a big number. Uh, and 2.6 million people receive harm because of their misdiagnosis. So why would somebody be misdiagnosed? It could be because they're having a medication reaction, they're having a, they're not explaining their symptoms properly, they're not getting, they're not understanding what the doctors and nurses are saying about the care they need, so they're not following through. There's so many different reasons just for that um, that medical error that we want to help them improve their communication so those things don't happen. Um, So it could be that they're taking the wrong medication. They're not understanding their medication. Uh, Infections are a big problem in healthcare. One out of every 25 patients, I believe, is a new study from the Centers for Disease Control. One out of 25 patients in the hospital will get a hospital-acquired infection. And none of these will make front-page news. None of these are big news. But the people who have this happen to them, are harmed, are scared, are they have to go back into the healthcare system in most cases, and now they're more vulnerable and and not sure how to avoid it from happening again because it can happen again. Mm-hmm. So there's so many different areas where mistakes happen. Our focus is what could we do, the patient and our families, do to avoid a medical error or injury happening to us. Not what the nurse can do, not what the doctor should be doing, but understanding what the policies are and then mm-hmm. what we can do to take action and make sure that we're, we're doing our part in staying safe.
1: Right. So a lot of this is not about necessarily the, the competence of the um, medical practitioners, but it's about communication, right? And it's, I think in some cases, uh it, it probably is exacerbated these days by shortages in institutions right the shortage of nurses um pro- but uh, probably as well there are certain procedural things right that that could be um perhaps better systematized i remember years ago um this reading um a book uh, by this guy named atal gawande about um the checklist manifesto and i think it was that book originally came out of um a research project that he was handed to try to see if he can find a way to um for hospitals to systematically reduce medical errors in, in operating rooms I don't think it was the hospitals overall but um and one of the things he concluded was having procedures the way and they're supposed to be instituted in the airline industry where the, before the pilot takes off you know he's got to together everyone around him and they've got all go through a checklist of you know and they all have to do it together Um, So is that right? I mean, are there so the communication issues, staffing issues, anything else that that you think is really critical in terms of um, um, the process?
2: Yeah, and what you brought up is really important because when we talk about the, the airplane, the airline industry, the healthcare industry compares themselves quite often to the airline industry. And when we think about the checklists, we as patients, if we know that that checklist is supposed to be happening before a procedure is done, we can ask for it or listen for it and know that it's happening. The checklist is what's the name of the patient, what are their allergies, what are they here for, because there's still problems with operating on the wrong patient or the wrong body part. Mm-hmm. I've witnessed where a doctor came in to do a, um, a hernia operation and, And said to the patient that it was on their right side when the patient spoke up and said no it's on my left side now we're not going to count that because it was a mistake but it never injured the patient Mm -hmm. we need to know that these things happen and when when patients and families know that the way things should be done then we should be able to be more involved and again going back to the the um the airplane when we get onto an airplane before the plane ever leaves, we're told where the emergency exits are. We're told about buckling our seatbelt, about the oxygen, all the safety measures. So when you think about the miracle on the Hudson, when the pilot landed that plane so safely,
0: mm-hmm.
2: it was the pa- the passengers who were trained on what to do next, that they also had something to do with the safety of each of them getting out and living through that 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 flight. So we have to, as patients, be ready to be part of that team and understand what happens and speak up about what we expect out of our healthcare team.
1: Great point. Yeah. Um, now, when you enter these uh, situations, um, can you, you and your family, say, all right, what what are the, ask for that checklist? Whether it's a, I don't know if there's an official checklist, but can you ask for what the, the practice is?
2: Sure. You can ask. Are you going to do the checklist? Um, I went in for surgery and I said, "Are you going to do the checklist?" And they said, "Yep, we're doing it right now." And they—I heard mm. them say their names. My name is, and I'm here to do this. And mm. um, uh, you know, then they started. Then I fell asleep. <laughs> they put me out before I was done. But uh, I did. I did bring it up, and hopefully, you know, they will do it every time, not just when we ask, but. Some of these things, and, and one of the doctors who are on our board and volunteered with us said when, when it started and she was had to get involved and she was so annoyed that it was just another nuisance in the operating room, um, then she realized, wow, it really is for patient safety. And she got used to doing it and was fine with it. Right. So these safety measures that we as patients don't always know about, we can't make sure they're doing it all the time because we don't know what they are, first of all. But we also want to be able to know what some of them are so we can ask for it. If we if we know about it, uh, my, my pet peeve is hand washing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this is a, a responsibility of the healthcare care provider to use antibacterial lotion or to wash their hands. And I don't even think of it anymore as, um, you know, for safety. I think of it as respect. And i could trust them if, mm-hmm. if you don't respect me enough to wash your hands before going to examine me then how can i trust you to do other things that are so obvious in your job that are for safety and courtesy and respect um hand washing is just an obvious easy way to know if your your healthcare provider is following procedures
1: right now I know that you you don't do as much these days on you know bedside um, care and support because um, you're busy doing a lot of other things and training people to do that. Um, but it seems to me that this is a particularly important uh, function because you know uh, you know when you're in an airplane it's you know generally you're kind of used to the, you know like the procedures and you know what's going to happen. But when you're in the healthcare system you're often not, <laughs> and I think there's a lot of anxiety and uh, it can be for someone of any age i mean certainly for kids but also i do think you know there is a place for advocacy and support you know as as people get older i think it's not just not in, just infirmity but it's anxiety um sometimes you know i think we do all get sort of a little bit intimidated by you know authority and credibility we don't ask questions and i think that's the main thing we don't ask questions and we kind of you know freeze a little bit so having someone there to help you i think is an important function and so and so i understand that part of what you do is training um families to do that kind of work
2: yeah that's that's actually what my favorite thing to do and we it's evolved over the past 15 years we've been doing this since 2006 exactly Uh, we developed training programs from anywhere from uh four hours to nine hour training and a lot of it is communication and understanding how to ask questions and what questions to ask and not to be intimidated. Doing role play is very helpful in not being intimidated by someone who every time they tell tell you something, they're looking at their watch to get to the next patient. And there's things that we can ask for to make sure that our our healthcare providers are talking to us and we have the right to ask questions. And if we don't understand what they're saying to get someone else to explain it, because if you're not going to talk to me in language, I can understand then find somebody that will talk to me. So I know what you're talking about. And if time is an issue, we can make another appointment.
1: Right. Yeah. I, I think, as you said, time, time often is an issue. And I think, unfortunately, um, yes, uh, you know, it's time is an issue and part of the problem is healthcare is a business and I'm not, I'm not anti-business. I'm just saying that there is an issue when a time becomes a commodity. And so it does seem like, you know, that there's an expectation from doctors and nurses to move patients along, get someone in, get someone out and enough questions don't get asked. And I think that sometimes um patients, and I've had this experience occasionally, you know, you feel like, Oh, I'm slowing down things. So I, I you know, I don't want to stop things and ask questions about what does that mean? What does that mean? And I think sometimes too, yeah, uh, like doctors like like other professionals get a little caught in their jargon and they just sort of become second nature to them. And you need to say, well, slow down. I don't know what hold on, you know, let's explain that term to me. Tell me what that means. Um so ask, you know, this is your health. Ask question, ask question, ask question. Um, and, and don't because it's it's for you, right? <laughs>
2: Right. And, you know, Ron, I worked 20 years in the post office before, well, while I was doing this also, but uh, my job was to help people mail their packages and their letters.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And when I do presentations for healthcare professionals, I always ask, does anyone know the difference in certified mail and registered mail? And I've never found a doctor that knows the difference. If they can't explain that to me, it was my job to explain to them the best way to mail a package. So when I work with usually older adults and I talk to them about their career and their jobs and whether they're a waitress or a hairdresser or or bookkeeper, chances are their doctor doesn't understand their profession either. Mm -hmm. And we start thinking of doctors as a profession instead of God-like person making our life and death situation, our our decisions for us, then maybe we can have a better conversation about our future and our our care.
1: Excellent point. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, they're professionals, um, but we're, we're patients and uh, it's a partnership (laughs) and we're, and so in a a broader sense, we're the, we're the clients. So uh, you know, that's something people really need to recognize that we have rights to ask those questions. We're paying for the care. We trust the professionals, but they need to trust us to ask the questions that are important to us. So, um, uh, you know, we're going to uh, just take another uh, uh, first of our quick breaks, Eileen. Um, so, uh, we're going to do that, but I want uh, we have a lot more to talk about in our next two segments. So, um, I don't want anyone to go away. We'll be talking much more soon with a patient safety advocate, Eileen Carina, the president of the Pulse Center for patient safety education advocacy so don't go anywhere we'll be right back
2: become our friend on facebook post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline visit facebook.com forward slash voice america
1: channel the internet's number one talk
2: station number one talk station voiceamerica.com
0: you're listening to 45 forward to reach ron roel or his guest on the program please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com that's ron.roel at gmail.com Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome
1: back, everyone, where we're we're talking with Aileen Karina, president of the Pulse Center for Patient Safety Education Advocacy. She's a passionate advocate who has worked for decades on behalf of patients and their families, striving to make the healthcare system better and safer for everyone. And before we dive back into um, Pulse and Aileen's work, um, I thought we'd take a step back and just have her talk a bit about her background, how she got into this work, you know, it's a little bit of personal history about yourself.
2: Well, there is around uh, most people who are involved in patient safety have a personal story. Mm-hmm. Uh, mine goes back 30 years now, over 30 years. My son, who's my only child at the time, Michael, had a tonsillectomy. It was what we thought was a routine tonsillectomy. He had ear infections, chronic ear infections. And just we decided uh, to have surgery. I chose the nicest doctor. I actually interviewed three different doctors and chose someone I liked a lot. And uh, when he had the surgery, when he came home the same day, for a week following his surgery, he was bleeding on and off. I went to five different uh, five different uh, um, emergency rooms and saw uh, different doctors each time, and everyone said, "Don't worry, he's fine." And uh, eight days after the surgery, which is a long time, eight days, he actually died. He bled to death and oh, no. surgery, and his body was full of infection. So I, uh, I I never got to talk to the doctor again to find out what happened to see if I could have done something different. Was anyone going to learn from this terrible tragedy? And I uh, went on to have other children. I had another son, and then my youngest son now, who is uh, who's in his 20s, he was born severely premature at just 23 weeks compared wow. to the usual 40 weeks. Spent many months in neonatal ICU with amazing caring nurses and doctors. And um, against all odds, not only did he survive, he's perfectly healthy. And um I, I like to say I saw the worst in healthcare, but then I saw the best in healthcare. Mm-hmm. So it was quite a, an emotional, um, you know, experience both ways. But after my son was born and, and was doing well, and I realized how well he was doing, I was not going to get past the fact that I needed a surgeon for him. He needed some surgery, and. I was really traumatized by the death mm-hmm. of my son, and, and I was forced back into the healthcare system and started a support group for survivors of medical injury in 1996 at mm-hmm. my congregation in Freeport, Long Island. And we met on uh, once a month on Sunday. People came from a few different states because we were very close to the train. And the stories of medical injury, people who survived or lost family members, was so... So so different in so many ways, each story. But everyone had had a, a lesson. They were part of the death or injury and wanted others to learn from their experience.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So we had to figure out how we were going to share these stories, and that's when we started a nonprofit organization, Pulse Center. For, it was was originally Pulse of New York, mm-hmm. and um, we started meeting with legislators. And uh, one of the things that came up is the lack of information on our doctor's background. And we lobbied for uh, physician profiles in New York State, and that law was passed in 2000. And we were there for the bill signing and, and really got a lot of credit for passing that. But in that publicity of information, we, um, we were hearing more and more stories, and we started growing locally.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and in 1999, I actually went to my first patient safety conference and where I heard medical professionals talk about medical errors. and many of them talked about the loss of their own family members, hospital executives. Mm. This was in Chicago. And I was hooked. I, I was I cried at the thought of of the pain that they were feeling, and they could not share because it was their own institution that injured, one person one hospital executive talked about the death of his son and mm. um there were such such so many stories out there that it broke my heart that we needed to work together to stop these injuries and deaths from happening and it wasn't about after the fact it wasn't about the blame it was about let's stop it by mm-hmm. including patients and families in patient safety and that's been our goal ever since
1: well wow. That's terrific. Yeah, I I think that um, certainly we focus a lot um, certainly in in my profession with journalism about looking at issues of oversight and enforcement of regulations and laws. And I think that there's that's fine. But I think that your activist approach to getting people involved um, is is critical to preventing these sorts of things. It's you know, and because once it happens, you know, as you point out, it happened. And so um, one of the critical components you, you, and, and we'll get through a number of your programs, but, but perhaps on that note, I'm talking about um, you know the um, uh, you know the take charge campaign, you know, how that works uh, you know, and, and how this is useful in terms of getting people involved in their own preventative care.
2: Well, Take Charge is a program that uh, a group of us volunteers, when um, even before COVID hit, we met locally and then it became much larger. Um, uh, uh, what are the things that the researchers say people should be doing to improve their own outcomes? And that's when we came up with the five steps for safer health care. And I'll just go real quick through them. Mm-hmm. Uh, prepare your advanced directives and very specifically we're talking about your healthcare proxy having someone speak for you if you can't speak for yourself and the reason is because when you go into the emergency room or you go in for surgery or the hospital that form is going to be in your admission packet Mm -hmm. that person if you haven't had the conversation about what you your wishes are then it's too late then to do it. And as a bedside advocate, I was asked many times to be someone's healthcare proxy because they needed someone to speak for them while they're unconscious or if something goes wrong. Mm-hmm. And I would have to pull together the questions, the appropriate questions at the last minute. So it's have your healthcare proxy ready. The second step is keep a record of your medical history and your medications. And that's that also came because as at the bedside of a patient, when they, she was going in for surgery and the nurse said to her, what are your medications? And she said, don't you have a list? And I was so upset to hear her say that because we went over your list. Where was your list? How come you don't have it with you? So we want everyone to make sure you have a list of your medical history and your medications. Don't make it the responsibility of the nurse or the doctor to know what your medications are. They should know, of course. But we should know also. We should expect them to know what that little pill is that we take every day. We are responsible. Prepare for your doctor visit with a list of your symptoms and your questions. Save time. Have that list of questions ready. There's something called the doorknob question. When the doctor puts their hand on the doorknob and are ready to leave, that's when we start asking questions. Ask your mm. questions. Have them ready. And the symptoms when did you start getting these headaches oh you just got it after you got that new medication maybe it's related to that when did your mom start getting depressed oh it was during that time maybe there's something related so have that medical history ready to have that conversation and number four is prevent infections help tell people to wash their hands we should be doing it as a caregiver for family members or when i'm with people i carry wipes i wipe everything down We should all be washing our hands before touching a patient. And then number five is be an advocate, use an advocate. So if you want to hire a professional advocate or have your family and friends be your advocate, you can have somebody be your advocate, but prepare to be somebody else's helper, caregiver, or advocate when they enter the healthcare system. So those are the five steps that we really um, focus on. There's many different areas of those that we could focus on. The communication piece falls under every single one of those. And we're this is what we're promoting now, these five steps.
1: Right, now can people find that on your website?
2: But, yes, and there's a takecharge.care website. It's www.takecharge.care, C-A-R-E. We do pre- presentations from high school age, from middle school, um, youth groups, all the way up to the older adults. I we have a video on there for mother's day last year my mom was in florida we did a video together and i just asked her her list of medications and was writing it down through on zoom so even though you're not with them face to face we could be their advocate Mm. from a distance so you know for mother's day what are you going to do they live far away well let's make sure i have your list of medications your list of doctors family member has a stroke or is in the hospital and then you start scrambling for information. If you're the healthcare proxy, have that form with you, have it dated, have it signed by somebody. It doesn't have to be a lawyer, but have that information ready. So you could step up and step in to help somebody and be prepared.
1: Right. So they're, there are several checklists (laughs) there's the checklist for the your uh, the practitioners and the providers but then there are the checklists on your part and and it's important for you to be active in terms of preparing your own checklist to compare against theirs
2: And we'll help anyone get started with this we'll help family members get started we'll help advocates get started whether it's a presentation or, or on zoom or on the phone how could people get started with this we're ready to help them and we the the take charge campaign is actually starts in March patient safety awareness week in March okay it's a kickoff for all five steps but then in April we have a group and we spend time in, on each of the um each of the steps so mm. all of April is step one all of March uh, all of May is step two and we go through for the five months for the five steps mm. and that's how we just promote it with with memes and articles and stories and videos and any way we can get people to interact on these five steps and empower them.
1: Right. So there, you, so there are two webs. One is the take charge.org, right?
2: Take Care. .care. Uh, t-
1: take charge.care. T- .care. Okay. Very good. And then the pulse website is uh, what? Let's
2: tell pulse me what center, that is. Pulse center for patient safety.org is it, it, the take Charge is under the pulse center mm-hmm. for patient safety website. Um, but you can get a lot of material, including take charge as part of pulse.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So we have a whole um a whole piece for our events and our programs. We have three programs a month. We have a symposium coming up. We do a conference every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we very inexpensive because we want people to be there. We also have uh, the three programs are some of them have continuing education for board certified patient advocates. And we want the community to come. We mm-hmm. want. It's not just for professionals or just for caregivers, because we want everyone to be part of our conversation so we remember that anyone can step up and be a caregiver or a patient advocate for anyone. You don't have to be professional. Yeah. You want to support them.
1: Right. So talk a bit more about that. I mean, about the uh, these courses, you know, that people can participate in. and you know, How, well, how do they work?
2: Well, the, we, the first mon- the first Wednesday of every month, we have PAC, Patient Activation Through Community Conversation. Okay. And that is a very loose conversation about where somebody might come and say, I wanted to stay overnight and the nurse wouldn't let me. And mm-hmm. what do we do? And now we have uh, people to talk about that. And that was actually started again at, at the congregation on Long Island. And it was a discussion group where people could check off what they want to talk about. I Mm -hmm. want to talk about, um, you know, advanced directors Mm -hmm. or I want to talk about surgery, safety, whatever they want to talk about and a very uh, loose fitting and that, can be continuing education for board certified patient advocates because it's ongoing discussion but we have rules we have we're not allowed to give any advice Mm -hmm. Uh, it's part of our communication training you cannot give advice you can say what's worked for me Mm -hmm. if you're telling me that your family member just had a a stroke and what are you supposed to do I'm not going to tell you what you should do I can tell you what what's worked um, nobody needs to be told what to do in this situation. And then People for Patient Safety, PPS, which again started here on Long Island at a diner, is the second Monday of each month, um, and that's moved to Zoom also. And it, we go into small groups with a topic of the month. So this month was, what does patient safety mean to you? Have you ever been stumped in a situation where you couldn't you couldn't figure out what to do, and how did you mm-hmm. help someone? Uh, have you ever advocated for someone so there's a question of the month and we go into small groups and we get to know people that way and then the third one is aces advocates could advocate collaborative educational series which is a lecture that is a speaker Uh, Mm -hmm. this month we're going to have somebody on billing and they bring case studies so the participants once they do their presentation they bring some case studies and here's the situation what would you do or how could you handle this and they figure it out and the expert tells us what we should actually be doing what works and what doesn't work and that also is um for continuing education for board certified patient advocates but we welcome you know grandmas and grandpas to come too because we want them there and i, and I joke about grandmas and grandpas because my mother who's um was just turned, is about to turn 90 has mm-hmm. been part of pulse for 25 years and wow. she's going to tell me um i don't know what you're talking about you know but i don't know what anybody's talking about so she keeps us very centered on remembering our audience is the public it's not the nurses or doctors even though they're there to help That's not our audience, our audience is the community and the people we want to be involved.
1: Right. Wow. Uh, Another project I wanted you to talk about um, is the Healthcare Equity Project, which is, uh, you know, uh, as I understand, you're you're dealing with the challenges faced by by vulnerable populations in small group sessions.
2: Yeah, I love that because it's very, it's it's unique. i actually was part of the american hospital association and national patient safety foundation patient safety leadership training back in 2010 Mm -hmm. i was only the second non-medical professional to be involved in that i had i got grants to participate and it was a year-long project and what i wanted to do i had to submit a proposal for what i would do in patient safety and what I wanted to do is meet with vulnerable populations, specific groups of people, talk about patient safety, like we're doing now, what we did, mm-hmm. and then ask them, tell me what it's about, what is it about patient safety or healthcare that is an obstacle for you to get safe medical care? Mm-hmm. And then we came up with projects, what you know, things that would be helpful to those specific groups, And then we had a conference in 2018, actually, that focused on some of those groups. And one of the things we learned is that many of the obstacles cross over to many different groups. Mm -hmm. And if we talk to the specific groups, like people with disabilities, Mm -hmm. it's very similar to people who are... um, you know who don't speak english mm-hmm. and, and that's what we did to focus on the, the different groups and that's also a, a program on our website healthcarequality.org is the is the website for that
1: right so i was going to ask you so the, the vulnerable groups include those with disabilities um
2: people uh, who are transgender um mm-hmm. we don't call it lgbtq we call it people who are transgender very specific mm-hmm. their needs are very specific um, people with lupus, different diseases, HIV, people with AIDS, the black community, the Hispanic, the day laborers. We did eighteen months of work with day laborers on Long Island and helped them through the healthcare system. Found out what their obstacles were.
0: Right.
2: Um, I could share with you some of the things we came up with, some of the programs we came up with on this. Um, but uh, I mean, some of them aren't even on there on the website, but. Mm-hmm there was a tremendous amount of groups that we worked with they are always looking to work with more groups of people um, college students and and young people we worked with teenagers um, people who were addiction people who had addiction to medications we worked with them so there was um, always a learning situation and it was very unique some of them were very unique to them
0: mm-hmm.
2: but again A lot of it had to do with better communication and and crossing over the the, the communication and the listening and skills for advocacy.
1: Right. Yeah, I think that these are critical tools people need. I think, uh, you know, I I think as we've moved into an age of specialization and, and technology, our expectation is to depend on professionals and that's fine, except that things are complicated and you need to be, you know, uh, active in terms of you know advocating for yourself because and you you can't um, there there are, te- there are no templates for us as individuals. We're all individuals. So we need to really um, make sure that that the healthcare uh, system is addressing our particular needs. And it's not easy. it's complicated. So um, so we're gonna uh, uh, take another quick break, folks. Um, but uh, we have one more segment uh, with Anin Karina. The uh, president of Pulse, uh, and we have a lot more to talk about, so don't visit. Come right back. We'll be here.
0: Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Tune in to Melody Edmondson's The Space of the Waste radio program. This companion piece to her successful guidebook series, The Space of the Waste, focuses on body types and how to make your waist length flattering, no matter what your body type is. Guests include designers, merchandise managers, factory owners, and more. You'll also find out what accessories will complement your body shape and waist length. Tune in every Tuesday at noon Pacific time and 3 p.m. Eastern time on Voice America Variety.
2: Tune in every Friday to get your weekend kickoff early. Join the legendary G. Keith Alexander for What's Hot Harlem America. The flagship show of the new Harlem America digital network has something for everyone. From the latest in entertainment to empowerment, health and wellness and more, we'll bring you a variety of fresh viewpoints, voices and ideas. What's Hot Harlem America with G. Keith Alexander can be heard every Friday at 1 p.m. in New York and 10 a.m. Pacific time on the Voice. America Variety Channel.
0: You're listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward.
1: Welcome back, folks. Once again, I'm talking with Anine Karina, the founder and president of the Pulse Center for Patient Safety Education and Advocacy. So, before the break, we were talking about um, the sorts of uh, programs you have. I thought we might use this last segment to talk a bit more about um, family-centered advocacy and and your your role specifically in helping people who don't know how to find help and and organizing their needs into action steps. So maybe you can just talk about some specific tips. You know, you've given one of them about asking questions, but what are some of the tips we can leave our audience with?
2: Well, well great, because sometimes we don't know the questions to ask until the doctor gets there. Let's say mm-hmm. we're visiting in the hospital and we're sitting at the bedside. Uh, one of the things I find is really helpful is to always have pen and paper ready if you're visiting somebody in the hospital and you go to the bedside, have that pen and paper so when they start talking, you could start writing. If somebody says, you know, the doctor was here earlier, but I really didn't understand. They said that I'm getting a new medication and they started me on something and the IV bag is has something new in it. You can write that down, ask the doctor the question. So be ready to always ask questions or be ready to always take notes for people in the hospital because they're gonna forget. Mm-hmm. So, if you're going to visit someone in the hospital, bring a paper and pen and and be ready to be helpful. Uh, You you know, to be helpful with the nurses, when the nurses are there, you want to make sure that you're not a nuisance, you're not a bother. We always, I always say that visiting hours, I probably shouldn't say this, but visiting hours are for people who are a bother. And mm. I've never been asked to leave. I have very often have been given a bed to sleep in or a chair to sleep in when I visit a patient at the hospital because I'm not a nuisance and I'm there to be supportive. So if you can get the water for the patient or you can get the pillow, fluff their pillow, um, ask the nurse how you can help. They're going to want the family there. You want to be sure that you're helpful. Always have the list of the patient's medications ready. You can have mm. that available, too, so you can be helpful. Um, we also... You know, people who are older very often are very proud and don't want somebody to to be telling them what to do or if you're a family member and you're the child. It, it can be very embarrassing and very uncomfortable for them. So acknowledge that. Let them know that, I know, Mom, this is really uncomfortable for you, but I really want to help. Mm-hmm. Um, and recognize modesty. Leave the room if they're going to go to the bathroom or they need to use a bedpan. Don't be expected to do that for a family member if you're there to help a family member. Uh, be be Let them be modest. Let them have some dignity. Just because you're in the hospital, you're sick, doesn't mean that you need to be exposed to your your guests. Um, I always leave the room unless the patient asks me to stay, and then I stay at their head if they're getting an exam from the waist down. I turn my back. I mm-hmm. can still take notes while the doctor's turning with my back towards them. I want to make sure that there's no embarrassment, no discomfort. They trust me that I'm going to make sure that they are treated with this dignity and respect the whole time they're there. Uh, If you're going to visit the hospital, don't bring flowers. Bring, uh, I encourage, chocolates. The Whitman samplers, now wrapped chocolates are better, but something to leave in the room for the staff. So little Hershey bars or something, wraps, little Snickers bar, the same thing for Halloween. Bring candy for the staff. You will never get rid of people coming in and out of the room thanking you for the candy. Most people bring the donuts or something and leave it at the nurse's station, leave it in the patient's room. Mm. Make sure all the staff knows it's there. We use, um, if we ask somebody to wash their hands, ongoing um, way we've been doing it for many years, is if I ask a nurse, could you just please wash your hands for before you handle the patient or touch the patient? And she'll say, I did already, which they always say that. I'll ask if they'll do it again for a Twizzler. And I carry <laughs> Twizzlers and lollipops. And this is something that many people who have taken our training have been doing. And ironically, we did it with candy canes one year around Christmas, and the nurses were all walking around in their breast pocket with candy canes and, and Twizzlers and the... Um, be- the pre-op room before surgery, the doctors were working around with swizzlers so we can congratulate them for washing their hands because if you offer them something as a reward it becomes light, everybody laughs and they say okay I'll do it again for a swizzler. Mm-hmm. So I've asked a surgeon to do it and, and even a surgeon who was very cold at first said oh I love swizzlers, okay I'll go wash my hands and it becomes very light and, and um, not intimidating anymore so and of course i told the patient bring him a box of twizzlers when you go for your after surgery checkup Mm -hmm. so those are some of the tips that we like to use to remember that if you bring a ziploc bag for someone with tissues pen paper um change in there that they want to have change in case there's a vending machine bring Mm -hmm. uh, bring parking change for parking do not eat the patient's food you're not going to want to do that so you want to bring a snack you could bring your own hand sanitizer you know keep keep yourself um, hydrated if you're an advocate and you're going to be there a while you might want to bring a change of clothing leave it in the car if you have a car i've i've been, spent many evenings sleeping in cars so i can give the patient some quiet time um so you want you want to just be prepared to be a help when you visit somebody don't just be a visitor to stand and watch somebody mm. and be prepared to let them sleep bring a book to read and just being a presence at the patient's bedside is very helpful. People mm-hmm. want to know that someone is there um, when the nurse comes in and uh, or a doctor comes in and leaves their business card, you know the patient's going to get a bill for it. So you might as well know who they are and why they're there mm-hmm. and let them know that the patient does not have to wake up to get their temperature taken if they're fine and they're sleeping soundly. Right. Um, so you want to be a help anytime you're you're at the hospital or even a doctor's office to help someone
1: yeah that's uh, interesting points you know so you're really yes you're, you're maintaining a certain professionalism a certain you know expectation of um, uh practice but you're also integrating you know, i hear you talk about you're you're integrating the sense of humanity into the, the the scene you know recognizing the humanity of the of the um the patient and also the the people taking care of them and really sort of acknowledging them Right? you're thinking it's because sometimes i think you can you know you get you it becomes i don't want to say, say it becomes too professional but you know what i mean in terms of your your expectations are just you know on a professional level and that's fine but these are people too working in the system so a little gratitude a little recognition a little extra favor for them i think is something great um um i wanted to just ask you about um we talked a little bit earlier about um, remote advocacy uh, and I wondered if we could talk a little bit more about that um, in the context of um, what are some, are there other lessons that we've learned about advocacy as a result of this uh, pandemic, as horrible as it was? Mm-hmm. Are there some lessons that came out of that that or um, or more that we didn't know? Probably a lot of the things that you've talked about really, you know, work pandemic or no pandemic. But, um, you know, what, any, anything, any other lessons that you think we learned out of that?
2: Yeah, I found, I I do something now called remote advocacy, and it's, Mm -hmm. you know, if you you have somebody in the hospital and the nurse or doctor comes in, the first reaction is, I got to go, the doctor's here. Well, early on, what I found is I would say to them, don't hang up, put me on speaker, and let me hear what they're going to say. I'll take notes. And once we started doing that, we found that this remote advocacy was really helpful because the nurse or doctor were very helpful in, in um, or very interested in talking to whoever's on that line because not only is the patient giving permission, but also they're able to get more information knowing that they're talking to someone who's taking notes and going to help the patient. The other thing is even longer term is when a patient was in the hospital and they let, they had surgery and left their phone open all night long. Hmm. So if their phone is open, I could put mine on mute and shut my camera, but their phone was looking at the ceiling on their tray table or or next to the bed or even next to them on the bed and their line is open 24-7. We can hear when the nurse or doctor come in and starts speaking. Unmute and say, "Hello, I'm here. My name is Eileen. I'm her, I'm her advocate or friend. I don't like using the word advocate, believe it or not. I rarely mm-hmm. use it. I'm her friend, and I'm listening in. Can I take some notes or help with any information?" Um, and one occasion, the nurse said to the patient, "We're going to give you pain medication." And the patient, who was very doped up, said, "Okay." They're going to send her home pain medication. And she said, okay. And I said, is it an opioid? Because the patient already told me she did not want any opioids. So I was able to hear that, catch that, and have the medication changed. Another time, a patient said... Nobody came in all night to check on me, and I was able to say, "Yes, they did. They came in at 3 a.m. I heard them, and I saw the nurse talking to you." So it's really helpful to keep that line open, and you don't have to do—you don't have to shut down just because somebody's going to sleep or nothing's happening. Um, I could—I was on the tray table on the tray table while somebody who struggled to eat was getting fed. And I was able to listen to the conversation. The nurse was very nice. She was feeding him. Um, And I was able to report back to the family who wasn't in a position to do this, uh, that yes, he he was fed, he was very satisfied, and everything went well at lunchtime. So remote advocacy is just leaving your phone open. Of course, you can't use it while you're doing this. You need a second phone maybe. But having the phone available at all times, not shutting down because the doctor or nurse came in the room.
1: Interesting. So, I mean, before we leave, we just have a few minutes. I want to just let people uh, know a little bit more about how, what your organization looks like. You know, that you have a lot of volunteers, you have staff, um, you you work hard yourself. You probably work <laughs> enough work for six people. But but tell people how your organization is structured and what, what opportunities We are right
2: volunteers. Now. And across the country, we have volunteers. Um, I love what I do, but I'm also a full-time caregiver now for a family member. sibling and um, that takes up a lot of my time so we're always looking for volunteers and support and we have committees and planning um, our fundraisers and our events and our symposium so we hope people will check out the website and if they want to volunteer we welcome people because we want some outside influences to come in and help with our programs and our you know our structure and you know, raising funding, raising funds for what we do is almost impossible because it's so unique what we do, and people don't know these statistics. It's only in government and and the news reporters who know the statistics, and when the ones who write about it. So it's not until somebody gets injured or loses a family member that they realize, "Wow, I'm one of them," and um, and we just want it to not happen anymore. So we're always looking for help.
1: Great, great. So there's always more to talk about, but we'll probably have to leave it there for today. I just want to thank you, Aline, for a, a really thought-provoking, important, informative conversation. Uh, once again, for our listeners, um, uh, give us the website where they can find out more about you.
2: It's pulsecenterforpatientsafety.org, www.pulsecenterforpatientsafety.org. It's all spelled out. Um, and then there's they can look at our programs and there's a lot there.
1: Right. And then there's the Take Charge website as well, right? TakeCharge.care, care, which you it's can also find under. That.
2: Yeah, it's also under the programs and Pulse.
1: Right, great. Okay. Okay, so once again, folks, tell your friends, if they missed my conversation with Anine today, you can listen to it as a podcast on voiceamerica.com. Just search for my show, 45 Forward. You can also find on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or go to my website, roellresources.com, and click on the 45 Forward tab. Um, If you want to send me comments or questions, email me at ron.roel at gmail.com. And be sure to join me next Monday, 12 noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern time, when I'll be talking with Barbara Paskin and Carol Pack, the co-authors of Over 60 Shades of Grey, who present their straightforward, no-nonsense, and a very funny guide to navigating the many sides of aging. So, folks, until then, keep moving forward, 45 forward.